Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review Desperately Seeking Susan. And you can dance. This was so cute. Right? This, right off the, I gotta ask you right off the bat, is this the best movie we've seen in, like, ages? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) I think this is maybe the best movie we've seen since Return to Oz? Yeah, I, I would cautiously say the same. I mean... It's it, it's so interesting because this is a movie like Return to Oz. Like, I knew less about this movie than I knew about Return to Oz. I truly just knew nothing other than, hey, Madonna's in this. I agree. I knew nothing. I knew nothing either. I knew it was a movie that people mention, but I knew nothing about it. I didn't even know Madonna was in it until you were like, and Madonna's in it. And I was like, cool. I love Madonna. I had no idea she became capital M Madonna while filming this. Yeah, that's like really interesting. I thought that was so fascinating because, you know, we were both born after Madonna had like reached her apex of pop stardom. And so like it's hard to just even imagine like what a pre-breakout Madonna was, but that's literally what she was when they cast this it was the indie darling risky choice like she beat out ellen barkin for the part because the execs wanted um ellen barkin it was like no no let's go with this pop star nobody's heard of and nine weeks into filming like a virgin comes out and she's capital m superstar madonna by the time this movie's in theaters so i was gonna question the timeline on it because i'm like but she dances to one of her songs and then i remembered oh stephanie that was probably done in post baby girl and well maybe done in post but also just like um and and gosh your husband is the one out of the three of us who has the most encyclopedic madonna <laughs> knowledge but like she was a known quantity she was a she was a factor um but she just hadn't made it she hadn't become that you know queen of pop music um that she became true but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So for those of you who missed the movie, Desperately Seeking Susan is the story of love-starved Roberta. A dreamy romantic, Roberta is dangerously obsessed with Susan and Jim, a couple who use personal ads to find each other across the country. Through her stalking and sleuthing, Roberta gets tangled up in Susan's crazy lifestyle. And so I, I affectionately started calling this, Andy, in my text to you, um oscar wilde with mobsters because that's kind of how it feels to me (laughs) it very much is like there's there's the the dna is in there like i don't know if this was pitched in the room as like a modern gender ben importance of being earnest remake but Mm -hmm. certainly right the the person who wrote this leora barris she she'd certainly had like read it more than a couple of times when she was you know making this script yeah because there's even a scene where two characters are having a conversation and they think they're having a conversation about the same person and they're absolutely not they're like oh well my susan would never do that yeah you're talking about two different people (laughs) right um this movie is so interestingly dated in in a couple of yeah. different ways. Um, I want I want to take a second and just be studio nerd Andy for a moment. One of the ways this is dated is it was made by the now bankrupt and defunct Orion Pictures, which, I mean, I, I say back in the day like I was around when these movies back back as a child i always like loved that logo it was always iconic and orion actually had like a pretty respectable phenomenal catalog of movies you know they they put out the first terminator they put out the child's play movies they were a big studio that would put out like you know oscar nominated movies and and things that would fill up cinemas and it was just it 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 was the first thing that like 
made me raise an eyebrow and go, oh, mm -hmm. Orion. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Expectations raised. Now meet the movie. And they blew them away. Well, and just even the setting from a visual point of view, this movie can only happen in the time that it does. But also, like, the conflict, it can only happen in the time that it does. Because if it happened now, obviously, you know, Susan would find someone with a phone and social media would be used to track the real Susan down. And it just, it's a very nice snapshot into when it is. Absolutely. And gosh, I mean, they probably weren't even considering that in the time, you know, that yeah. this was made because it was presented as a modern movie. But it, it does show like, hey, here's a chunk of what the 80s were like that is completely gone. Because to take your point a step further, if this happened nowadays, like like Susan would be pinging Jim's Facebook account from you know multiple different hotels across the country and like she she'd be like the ain't rights from green room and she would have one phone and no money but she like there wouldn't even be a way for rob for roberta to idolize their relationship because she just wouldn't know about it yeah i'm thinking of what would happen if susan had a tiktok <laughs> i've spent in the time of the quarantine, I have spent far too much time on TikTok. So, of course, that's the lens through which I'm viewing it. <laughs> she'd be, she'd be, you know, dancing to whatever the latest trend is with her stolen, priceless Egyptian earrings. She's bougie and she's savage. She's bougie. She's savage. Um, she is so charismatic and amazing. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I honestly don't know whether to put this on Madonna as an actor or Susan Seidelman as a director or what. But from the word go, Susan, the character is just so trash, glam, queen, charming, and you like her and she's a badass and she's gross. Like, I love her suitcase. I was disgusted to watch her eat cheese doodles in white gloves. With white gloves! Yeah. Yes! Yeah. Oh, I was like, how do you know? Like, going full truck stop bathroom and, and cleaning her pits in the hand dryer. Like, oh. but she's she's great and she's annoying and you love her and she's flawed and just mwah amazing character and roberta equally does not fail to keep up she's beautiful and vulnerable and adorable and i love her shockingly adorable stunningly stunningly cute throughout the entire movie like i had to pause and take a picture of you the part where she's sitting on the floor of the port authority and and has a cigarette that we the audience know she's never smoked like just dangling out of her mouth and was just like oh my god she is adorable <laughs> well it's those big big eyes and the fact that she's like well i don't know i don't know i don't know in that scene she says i don't know eight times and you're just like oh honey i just want to take you in and wrap you in a blanket right <laughs> <laughs> No, the, the characters are great and like so clearly established without ever actually having to say anything. You know, mm -hmm. Roberta is in her loveless marriage with Gary and oh, we don't even fuck Gary. Fuck Gary. Gary deserves nothing in this movie. He is a complete piece of shit. Um, but like, how do we know it's a loveless marriage? They don't even do like some cliched bedroom scene it's no it's like the guy is an egotistical prick who only cares about his hot tub commercial being held during her birthday party um and then there's the scene in the kitchen where it's like okay my wife can't sleep she's in the kitchen i better make sure she doesn't eat all the cake like that's her birthday cake that's her birthday cake just Without saying it, it shows that he is such a prick and she is such a, like, of course, repressed character that it, it perfectly justifies 
her somewhat manic um, actions later on and like her, her fuck it. I'm going to find Susan like moment that, that starts off the whole film. Well, I even knew that he was a trash husband from the first scene where his sister says, oh, no, give her a trim. Her husband will love it. And I was like, who who cares what her husband okay. thinks of her hair? Like, obviously, you want, you know, you want your partner to find you appealing. But, like, when I go get a haircut, I'm getting my haircut for me, you know? Sure. Like, so it's just this whole thing of, like, what? Yeah. And then we find out throughout the movie, oh, no, he's a dick. Oh, no, he's a dick. Oh, no, he's a dick. Because, of he, course, he's having an affair. Yeah. He's a dick. He's a self-centered asshole. That that was one of the other um, things. And, and actually, I, I, I don't want to spoil it yet, but there's a line that is my quote that was like the moment I was like, okay, this is the importance of being earnest moment. Um, but like... He's a dick. You find out the sister's a total bitch, um, played by the phenomenal Laurie Metcalf. Um, but even just like the side characters, the smaller parts, like like Jim. Jim had this really great kinetic energy to him, and you could tell he was a really nice guy who was like totally nuts about Susan, but also just enough of a badass where he's in a punk band and you know he's got the the whole club punk leather scene going on or even more than that larry the balding dentist who is <laughs> leslie's romantic interest throughout the movie like he I, I was like i first see him and they make a line about leslie thinking he's a catch and i was like is this balding weirdo an indictment of 80s men or just an indictment of leslie and then he had some of the funniest lines in the entire movie um yeah just really great she has great teeth. Speaking of great moments in the movie, the soundtrack is perfect. It slaps. It absolutely does. This is a great soundtrack movie. Obviously, I mean, you know, with Madonna. Um, yeah. I guess you kind of can't have Madonna in a movie and not have a good soundtrack. I'm trying to think about if Evita, if the if the soundtrack for Evita stands up. Antonio Banderas' song stand up. So yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> I mean, Don't Cry For Me Argentina is like the song of that musical and it slaps. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that was, that I, I totally loved about this movie and it completely like hit me outside the head and I'm still not sure why I loved it. Desperately Seeking Susan gives us so much 80s New York City porn. And I, I don't mean the porn Wait, that was... What do you mean? Yeah, I don't mean the porn that was being sold in Times Square because this was pre-Disney New York. But, you know, I use the term like you would use for landscape porn. But just like ah. the, the pre-Disney dirty, grimy, yes, muddy in times, like visceral New York City that your parents warned you about when you were little. Like, <laughs> I adored it. I adored it for all of its grime and heart. And even like the scene where Roberta is walking down a series of dark alleys, I was terrified because I was sitting here being like, there are worse things you could stumble upon than the mafia hitman trying to get you in those alleys. Yep. It's, it's not something that like is supposed to be admired and and yet i loved it i i loved um i loved dez's god-awful walk up up the fire escape and his you know those those tiny doors those shitty staircases maybe i just need <laughs> to visit the city again i don't know like i was here for new york is all i was gonna say it sounds like when the choir is over you just need to uh take a trip to new york city Sounds like it. And even then, like, I think that's the thing is like, this is a snapshot. This is a snapshot uh, of something that only exists down the right alley in New York nowadays. Like, this is just something you, you have to reach out and find it to touch it. And otherwise, it's just completely gone. But like, hmm. more than a Western, more than this is a period piece of a period that, again, I, I wasn't alive for, but like, this is the 
closest back you can touch to a period piece, I feel like. And it's I totally, still be different. I totally understand that. I think of, you know, Neil Simon plays, which are, you know, set in the late 60s, early 70s. And those are now period pieces in a way that you're like, wait, that doesn't make sense, you know, because it happens within a local and esteemable recollection. But it's still, you know, it is a different time. Phones were attached to the wall. You sat and you talked on the phone in that room because you couldn't carry it around with you. Right. You know, like, it's in the same way, like, it's got this kind of... I I kept thinking of You've Got Mail, not in the sense that it's in the same time, but in the sense of, like, because we carry our technology around with us, this could not have happened at any other time. So it's that perfect capture. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I, I was so expecting to come out of this being like, there were so many things overlapping with Pretty in Pink. Pretty yeah. in Pink came out a year before... Or, Pretty in Pink came out a year after this movie, but Desperately Seeking Susan feels like it's in an entirely different era. And I don't know if that's because Pretty in Pink is so zoomed in on the high school experience in random Indiana town and Desperately Seeking Susan manages to be that period piece. Hmm. Or maybe it's, you know, the the characters in Desperately Seeking Susan are more relatable to us as adults than the ones in Pretty in Pink are at this point. I'm not sure, but I'm just going to go and say this movie was so much better than Pretty in Pink. No, that's fair. I found myself loving this and also mad that I hadn't seen it sooner because I I think this is one of my new favorite movies. Sure. Is that fair to say? I didn't expect that. I think that's totally fair to say. I, I I love when that sort of thing happens. You know, neither of us were, I mean, we weren't expecting this to be God awful, but we certainly weren't expecting it to be as good as it was. And, and those things that you stumble into, I, I really like if you, if you decide that this is one of your new favorite movies. I think it is. I think it's the, the right amount of comedy of manners. Oh no, wait, she's in the next room, but no, she isn't. She escaped down the fire escape, but it's also badass. And there's also a really fun plot. And in the end, it all turns out well, which is probably my requisite for one of my favorite movies. The only exception is Moulin Rouge. (laughs) Where nothing turns out well. Right. At the very end of Desperately Seeking Susan, there's a single shot where Des and Jim are sitting at the bar and they both came there to find Susan. Susan doesn't know this and she walks right behind them and they look no, they look so nonchalant. And that is such a simple moment that got such a big laugh out of me because you, you, you hit the term perfectly. It is so comedy of manners. Yeah. It's the, whoa, whoa, they're in the same room, but nobody knows. Right, exactly. Like, I was trying to think of (laughs) how does the play version of this work and come together, and and could you actually do it? I think you could pretty easily. Oh, well, now I just want to do that. Apparently, (laughs) neither here nor there, apparently this became a musical in the West End, but it was a Blondie musical. Okay, no, I mean, I guess. I mean, that's, okay, fine. that's, that's, we can't get the rights to make a Madonna jukebox musical is what that is. <laughs> that's Madonna's expensive. Will you settle for Blondie? Which, you know, which no one. Fair, yeah, I'll, I'll settle yeah. for Blondie. Trust me, I'm not settling. <laughs> I've seen CBGB. <laughs> um, it's worth comparing that there is a theme between Roberta's life and Susan's life. So sure. Roberta's life before Roberta hits her head on telephone pole um, because she's wearing a jacket and an earring that she bought from a pawn shop because she's obsessed with Susan. Um, and some guy is chasing her. He shoves her into a telephone pole. She hits her head. She gets amnesia. Before her life falls out of order, 
her life is domesticity and order. It's picking up cars. It's making chicken with Julia Child on the TV. It's be home by this time. You have a party. You have a hair appointment. And then there's Susan's life, which is chaotic neutral at best. Yeah. And you never know where she's going to be. You never know how much money she's going to take from you. Her, even like her best friend is like, hey, please don't make long distance phone calls on my home number. I know that you have this cross country boyfriend. Just please don't do it. Like she's nuts. And there's really, really like a commentary here that like the desired life for women is supposed to be like this lack of productivity predictability and adventure and i i don't know where i'm landing with that but it's just it's very present throughout the movie well i really like it and and the thing that i like so much about it in desperately seeking susan is it really sells that point about the predictability and adventurous lifestyle it's about the adrenaline because you see this again and again and again where it's the good girl and the bad boy and they, you know, mm-hmm. they they fall in love, and and she likes that he's a little bit bad, um, and to do that, but to have Roberta so into Susan, and and never in really a romantic way, I, I didn't think, um, no, but it really highlights that it's like, no, I like the danger, I like the fact that this chick's boyfriend has to put solicitations to her in the paper just to even find her. It really justifies that desire in women without boiling it down to a romantic thing. Yeah. I like that thought because it it allows it to be complex. There's de- I mean there's definitely a subtext where it's like okay maybe Roberta could read a little queer and she's settling for Des but she's really obsessed with Susan. Like there's you could argue that sure but you could also just as easily argue you know, this is a Marxist commentary on the haves and the have-nots. Whatever, I can do whatever I want with my literature <laughs> degree and make any kind of argument I want to. But the point is, like, I like that it's not about romantic commentary. I like that it's, this woman lives this amazing life. And, God, I want I want that adventure in that great wide somewhere. Sure. and And, you know, it winds up especially for the time period this is made in, I would argue this is an incredibly feminist or or at least pro-feminist movie. Oh yeah, for sure. Written by a woman, directed by a woman, starring two female leads. This wasn't in the notes, but you know, they, um, they had Dennis Quaid and Kevin Costner both read for Des and both of them (laughs) were like, I'm going to be third billing. Nah, I'm cool. Well, and they originally were going to cast Diane Keaton, Goldie Hawn, and Bruce Willis. And then they decided, nah, we're going to go with a bit younger of a crowd. Sure. But oh my God, Goldie Hawn and Diane Keaton and pre- um, Pre-Die Hard. Bruce... Thank you. Yes, the movie I've never seen. My favorite pre Christmas Di- <laughs> Uh, <laughs> pre diehard Bruce Willis, go on. <laughs> pre diehard. Well, that's the point. Like, can you imagine that would we would have seen that movie because we would have been like, oh yeah, this has people, all people I've heard of. Whereas, like, other than Madonna, I hadn't heard of anyone in this cast before. But I don't have a film degree. Oh, so. scary. Des, Des, scary. My husband. Hi. Well, even then, you know, I've I've got a television degree, and and I thought Rosanna Arquette was Patricia Arquette's mom. That is how little I knew about her. They're actually cousins or something. Um, I thought she was David Arquette's mom. Maybe that's it. That might be. Uh. It. I don't know. I, I'd never seen a Rosanna Arquette movie aside from Avia. I had never seen a Madonna movie. I had never heard of Aiden Quinn. 
um, who is Dez and who had like, I, I was here for him. He had some Tom Waits energy about him. Like he's a very pretty man. He's a very pretty man. I don't know if I'm crushing on him as much as the other two people I crush on in the show, but like there were shades <laughs> of it that I was very here, here for. Um, I like part, part of what I liked is how at least from our perspectives, this was a, mostly hugely unknown cast and crew. It adds something that there isn't the recognizability of a Bruce Willis or a Diane Keaton and like, you know, all of their retrospective careers worth of nostalgia casting a light on the performance. I like that. I think that's a really good way to put it because there is so much... That, like, now when you come to Madonna, there's so much baggage with Madonna, but this is the beginning of her career when she was a pop star. But yeah. not, like, the pop star. Right. In in my mind, I'm sure there's other stuff, but in my mind, there's there's pre-Britney Spears kiss and post-Britney Spears kiss Madonna. And they, <laughs> they are two completely different people. Spoken like a true 90s child. Indeed. <laughs> Speaking of references, there are so many references to other movies in this movie. Or just like to filmmaking as a whole. Yeah. So like Des works at a movie house and there's movies and shown throughout the movie. Like Roberta is watching a movie when she's sitting alone in the kitchen eating cake. And I wanted it to be, like, a cool movie. It's kind of... You said it's The Time Travelers, which I have never heard of. Right. I So I don't even... I don't remember what Roberta was watching, but that just tells me it wasn't something, like, super recognizable. And, and yeah, Des works... And, and I didn't even know this, not being, like, a true New Yorker. Um, until I read about it. But so Des works in the Bleecker Street Cinema House, which is apparently like a, a cultural landmark these days in New York and, and was one of the oh, preeminent yeah. like, you know, art house cinemas in its day. And yeah, he, I, I got to laugh because he sucks at his job. And I, <laughs> like, I, I at least hope that those people got their money's worth back for you know yeah i was in the theater and the real burned up um but yeah the the first time <laughs> they're playing something i had to look it up apparently it's called the time travelers and yeah it looks like something that belongs in a mystery science theater episode um <laughs> and then at the end there's another movie and and this time the poster was like on the projector so i saw it was called pattern for plunder and i was like okay interesting let me look this thing up bizarrely there is next to nothing like I have proof that this thing is a movie, but beyond that, I cannot find anything about pattern for plunder. So just very interesting. Like huh. John Hughes or, or even like uh, Cameron Crowe, if they had rewritten this movie or even if this got remade today, the movies would have had like a layer of importance to them or some little tongue-in-cheek, like, reference. And instead, it's just presented as, like, yeah, people watched movies of the day. This guy is a projectionist. Like, that doesn't mean he's playing something that is at all culturally relevant at any moment in time. <laughs> kind of like how um, Netflix Christmas movies are self-referential. Totally, Yeah. How in the Christmas Prince, there is something playing on the TV and it's one of the other Netflix Christmas movies. Huh. Now here's a rabbit hole, but I don't know when we as a society got so obsessed with callback referential Easter egg like culture in our movies and TV. But whenever that is, mm. this is totally before that. It That's fair, because none of these movies... Like, I kept expecting Roberta's movie to be, like, love story. Right. Or something... Like, Sleepless in Seattle mentions love story multiple times. This is not that. No. And, and 
I think all of this just adds up to being better for it. Like I'm, I'm left sitting here after I finished this, I, I looked up the writer, um, who I mentioned before, this was written by a woman named Leora Barish and Leora Barish wrote one movie in her career. And that's it. And this was it. And other than that, she, she has like an episode of TV and like a short story and, oh, okay, no, I'm sorry. She wrote Basic Instinct 2. <laughs> um, she has five what? credits. Another as a director, another as an actress. And so I'm just like, okay. I mean, the script wasn't groundbreaking. It didn't reinvent the wheel, but it was incredibly solid. Like... I don't know anything about this person. I don't know if she was just like, yeah, this Hollywood thing isn't for me or, or what. Um, so, okay. I was, I was sad about that and I was like, okay, well, okay. Well, what about Susan Seidelman? Like, like this, this woman did such a phenomenal job directing this film. I really think so. She has to have like this, this whole career and she really doesn't like, she does she she's done a movie like every three four years ish she directed the pilot to sex in the city um she directed the movie she devil which is the first comedy meryl streep ever did um but like oh interesting by and large the two main creative forces behind this movie didn't go on to have careers that I would assume they have. And, and I couldn't find anything that said like, Oh, Susel Seidelman did the Rick, the, um, uh, the guy from ghostbusters, Moranis, what the hell's his name? Rick Moranis. It is Rick Moranis. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I didn't read anything that said Susan Seidelman pulled a Rick Moranis and decided to raise her children instead of directing or, or even like, Oh, they had prolific, live theater careers or just it's like no i can't really figure out what these people did and i i would have assumed that if nothing else they would have had like you know long and consistent careers because this movie was so good it's almost like they pulled a desperately seeking susan bringing it back baby there you go but just to pull it away real quick i i do want to point this guy out the one person who did go on to have that career i expected was the cinematographer a guy named ed lockman who i've never like heard of before but he is still making movies today he was the cinematographer for the bob dylan biopic carol um uh, just a whole bunch of stuff. This guy has that career that I would have thought that everybody like would have came, would have come away from desperately seeking Susan having. And, and instead it was just the cinematographer, but I Which, digress. No, I mean, you don't digress because the cinematography in this movie is to die for. It is. It is what put this movie over the top for me. A hundred percent. I'll pay for the movie. If you pay for the popcorn. Okay. But listen, how much is popcorn? Two fifty. <laughs> Oh my gosh, Andy, there's so many beautifully sh- shot moments. There's a moment where um, a sax, a saxophone player is shown in the window of another apartment. And it's like a throwaway shot. It's not in any way important to the film. But the way that they've lit the saxophone player is such that he has two different shadows. Mm-hmm. And it was stunning. It was so pretty. This movie is filled with those moments. Like the the other thing, the the moment that took my breath away, it's right at the end. It's when Susan and Roberta finally actually meet each other for the first time in the dressing room. And and the way it is is, you know, they they bonk the mafia guy in the head and knock him out, and then the camera cuts to Susan and then reverse cuts to Roberta, but Roberta is framed by the wall in such Uh a way. And it's this like kind of yellowish wall. It it looks like it is the frame of a mirror and, you Uh know, they're, they're mirroring each other in body position and where they are in the shot. And I swear my brain 
didn't know what was happening. I, it, it like my brain was like, <laughs> okay, where did the mirror come from? Wait, that's Roberta. Whoa. There's so many goodies like that throughout the film. There's a moment when Roberta is running away down an alley and she's perfectly framed in the alley. Like she's running down the middle and it's just, uh, just mwah, mm-hmm. mwah for this movie. It's so tasty. It really is. Like the cinematography was amazing. The shot composition, like, I don't know. I don't know if, if we've seen a movie that was shot so well, just in in the sense of like, okay, I'm going to put this here, put this here, put this here. Bam. You've got this brilliant, perfect shot. Yeah. And even then, like, the other thing is the direction. I, I can't gush about Susan Simon enough. There are so many tiny things. Um, and the, the thing that caught my eye the most um, when Roberta is stalking Susan, there's this close up shot. And right behind Susan <laughs> is this incredibly comfortable rabbi. <laughs> and I've got to sit here and be like, this was an extreme close-up that can't be some guy in New York that had to have been an extra, which means he was told, <laughs> okay, act like this woman's an absolute freak invading your personal space, and the guy sold it. <laughs> and I have to say, so if we're herping on people we love, like the script writer whose name was, I'm so sorry, you looked it up and I didn't. Leora Barish. Okay, Leora Barish. It's a goddess in my mind, because the scene where they're talking about female orgasms with Leslie, Gary, and Larry, <laughs> just the composition and the breakdown and the tension of that scene and how it builds is so damn delightful. It's perfect. I agree. Like, like this is easily a top five top 10 if not top five i mean you you went ahead and said it this is your favorite movie we've seen yeah yeah i think so well other than totoro but i don't feel like that counts fair (laughs) (laughs) this was an utter 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 gem for so many reasons while we're on that note though you had a few problems with it and I, I want to talk about them. I, I did. And I think that's the the one reason why this didn't like instantly sink itself into my number one. I think gun to my head. I still return, prefer return to Oz. Um, amnesia as a <laughs> plot device. Yeah. Cause you even asked me like you, you texted me or, or it was in your notes somewhere <laughs> about like, why does she bonk her head? Oh, just there's a theme of head injuries. Mm. Like Roberta gets a head injury twice. Like she bonks herself and then she bonks herself again. And suddenly she remembers she's Roberta. Right. But like also two other characters get head injuries. And I was like, why is this a thing? And and I got to say for Roberta, at least the answer is amnesia is slash was, was especially because it used to be a lot more prevalent, a stereotypical, i.e. lazy plot device back in the day. And I sit here, and I think my real problem with it is, I think you could write this movie where Roberta doesn't get amnesia, and it's basically the same. And you would just need to lean in to how trapped she felt and make Mm. her willing to lie, basically. Um, yeah, you know, lie to Des and, and lie to everybody else and just want to not be Roberta so badly, which it's, it's pretty clear. She doesn't really want to be Roberta. Um, you know, not want to be, I... hmm? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, make her not want to be Roberta so badly that she is willing to lie. And then uh, tell me if this is what you're going to say. You probably then do lose a little bit of the comedy of errors. Well, and you lose rooting for Roberta. Because I think if she's lying, then that kind of makes her a little less of the, what? Why, I sure don't know, but I'd love to find out. Like, then she kind of becomes, oh, this is just cruel and unusual. This is punishment. A little bit, but, you know, that that brings us to her point. Des and Roberta's romance, while we root for it, is incredibly, like, suspect. And to your point, 
they they start that romance and she thinks she's susan and yeah okay what's that i have a boyfriend okay i don't remember him it's a little murkier on des very clearly wanting to go after his buddy's girlfriend but eh. the eh, jesse had a girl she was always a good friend of mine exactly um you know finally by the time they actually you know have sex roberta knows she's roberta so i would argue you still have that like that can we root for her problem and i think you can as long as you just make gary a little bit more of an utter bastard um (laughs) and and just really highlight like I was this trapped housewife, maybe add something about never really wanting to get married. I mean, mm. I don't know. I, I, I was relatively okay with it, but it was like the very first thing that came into my mind of like, really amnesia <laughs> because this could have just been the princess and the pauper. That's the other way you make it is it's, or, how did you put it? The housewife and the hobo. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel is if it pretty was filmed, apt. It, it is very apt. If it was filmed today, it would be the housewife and the hipster. Oh, sure, 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 sure. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just mean, I, I, I can see whether or not I can perfectly see it and I'm ready to, you know, give it a treatment. I can see how you make this movie without amnesia because the amnesia thing confused me the most. I, I had missed the importance of her purse because it was such a weird ass looking purse when it fell into the river. I was like, what is this? What is this urn? Were were the earrings in there? Are we going to have to go (laughs) diving in the hut? What, what is happening? What, Um, what is going on? There's such yeah, that was her purse with like her keys and IDs and stuff. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah, you. But it wasn't well established at all. And you don't need to throw her purse in the Hudson if she just decides to, you know, hide it. She can throw it in a garbage can or something. But I digress. Um, something. So, so something else that you didn't love. That, that I wanted to talk about. And, and, you know, we said that this was a fairly feminist movie. That doesn't mean there aren't certain parts that didn't age well. <laughs> there are always parts that didn't age well. Social right. justice. One, two, one, three. Two, three. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be PC. There's, okay, so um, one of the plot points of the movie is that Roberta starts working in the magic club where... Um, Susan's best friend works and has left. And there's a terrifying, awful joke about someone being raised in Queens and then someone says, well, I don't know about, or excuse me, someone being raised in Queens and then the MC says, well, I don't know about y'all, but I had normal parents. Right. And... That rubs wrong because it's saying like, oh, okay, one, queens can be an offensive term. And two, queer people are also normal people. So that juxtaposition made it seem like, oh, yeah, gay people aren't normal. And, so and, that didn't end well. And, and I got to tell you real quick. So, so you know, baby John Totoro gives that line. And... My brain went to royalty. How so? <laughs> Completely skipped the idea of queens being a derogatory, offensive <laughs> term. You thought like monarchy, like Elizabeth. That is where my sweet brain went. <laughs> oh, my sweet baby angel, Andy. I know. I... I just I got to chuckle about it now because I was <laughs> like, what was. Uh... Oh. <laughs> you're so cute. Oh, my gosh, you're so cute. Yeah, no, they meant they meant gay people. Sure, sure. Now now I get it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you see, Andy. No, and then there's also, I didn't put this in the notes, but there's also a moment where the first person of color we see is, granted, not the last person of color, which I will give the movie that, but the first person of color we see is a man playing a djembe wearing a dashiki. Hmm. Okay, sure. In the park, and it's like, okay, is that going to be the only representation of people of color? But following that, we have shots of the city where there are tons of people of color. So it's neither here nor there, maybe just 80s thoughtlessness, but... Maybe. I I don't know. I'm certainly not going to try to die on a hill for just about any movie written in the 80s because by and large people just had more offensive takes. I kind of took that all just as more of like a New York is the melting pot. Cause true. You know, we, we get cameos of the, the Saudi people wearing cowboy hats or like the, uh, the, the dude selling glasses who, um, you know, is, is African-American, and it is actually uh, Giancarlo Esposito from Breaking Bad in like a blink and you'll miss him kind of role. Um, oh, no he, way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the the security guard who who can't really speak English. Um, I it all seemed as just kind of like, yeah, it's New York. We can't just have white people. Our leads have to be <laughs> white people. <laughs> but that's because half of them are from Fort Lee, New Jersey. Yeah, that's true. But fair. Like I said, I'm not going to die on on a hill trying to defend that. <laughs> no, that's that's absolutely fair. Um, the other notable person of color is a prostitute in the cab with <laughs> Roberto. Do you want to say? <laughs> so, yeah, this isn't my quote, but I died laughing. I disrupted my <laughs> wife who was playing video games in the other room <laughs> with my laughing, my, my laughing Roberta gets put into the squad car and she still has her cage of doves. And yeah, the, the other prostitute just looks at her and goes, how do you use the birds? <laughs> I lost it. Oh my gosh. It's my favorite because I also sat there and thought like, well, how would you use the birds? I mean, does each bird cost I- extra? Like, is it like a sensation thing? Do the birds take off and it's a certain feeling? Like, Andy, I genuinely sat there and tried to figure out how one could use birds. You know, I could get used to a place like this. Got any pot? <laughs> we're, we're such an adorable pair, we are. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were royalty. How does one use the birds? Do the birds take off the dress? <laughs> oh, no. Okay, an equally ridiculous question. Miller or Heineken? Uh, Heineken. Obviously. So much. we're self-respecting Americans. Exactly. I took that line to be like a joke about how amnesic Roberta was. That there would even be like a question in her mind of which one she wanted though oddly like Miller had to have put money into this movie because there were so many bottles of Miller that were consumed. Really? I didn't even notice. Once I noticed like it it kept popping up again and again and again, like they're drinking Miller's at, at Gary's place and Jim has a Miller at the bar and, and uh, fair enough. Des has a Heineken. So Heineken got a little money in there too. Um, I didn't put this in the notes, but camel cigarettes um, was going to oh, fund like something like $500,000 into the movie and pulled it uh-huh. out after they saw the part where Des tells Roberta, she should stop smoking because she's coughing over a camel cigarette. Oh my gosh. So this was a very product conscious movie is all I'm going to say. <laughs> That's very 80s. <laughs> Speaking of quotes that were almost our quote, um, I love, well, we all thought you were dead. 
No, I was just in New Jersey. <laughs> Which is uh, especially salient for the two of us being married <laughs> to uh, a pair of uh, Jerseyites. <laughs> yeah, Alex watched this with me and he goes, Hey! Like, out loud at the television. Like, baby, they can't hear you. That's not how TV works. Also, they're in the past. (laughs) (laughs) But what was your real quote? So my real quote, and and this was one of the moments that really felt the importance of being earnest to me in in a comedic way. Um, You know, Leslie and Gary are talking and and Leslie is is saying that Roberta's got to be having an affair. And, And to his credit, Gary's like, Roberta's not having an affair. But then he ruins it by saying she doesn't even like sex. Um, and Leslie calls out that Gary is, is having an affair with somebody and has been for quite some time. And they get into that and, and Gary just says, well, we're having a perfectly respectable affair. (laughs) Fuck you, Gary. You don't deserve anything. You don't deserve that scene where Madonna's smoking weed with you. Like, Oh, true. Gary sucks, just plain and simple. But that line was very funny comedy of errors to me. Yes, it feels very, please don't eat the cucumber sandwiches. They're meant for Gwendolyn. Proceeds to eat all of the cucumber sandwiches. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> My quote actually comes from that same scene wherein Gary and Larry are shoving food in their face. And uh, Leslie calls them on eating so much and says, you know, your your wife is missing. Why are you eating? And Gary says, we're nervous. What do you want? And Leslie replies, take a Valium like a normal person, which is the most me statement of ever. <laughs> I mean, uh, far be it for me to dispute that opinion. <laughs> As I sip my white wine like a Karen. (laughs) Oh, man. So something else we like to do here on Cult Fiction is is give every show, every movie we watch an Oscar. Desperately Seeking Susan, to its credit, was nominated for a Golden Globe. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. Specifically, surprisingly, to Rosanna Arquette. Um, Huh. As best actress? Best actress in a comedy or musical. Mm. Mm -hmm. Which I think is totally fair. She deserved it. Something that really like just gave me joy was apparently in the audition. She was like ready to read for Susan. And I just, I want to see the movie where the roles are reversed just to see Rosanna Arquette's Susan. (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to see that too. But in any case, um, as the Simpsons point out, a Golden Globe is no Oscar. We need to give Desperately Seeking Susan a pair of Oscars because it desperately deserves them. (laughs) I agree. Would you like to go first? Why, sure. Andy, I would like to award Desperately Seeking Susan the Oscar for Unexpected Cult Fiction Graduate. Which is to say, there's a shot that I commented on earlier in this episode of a saxophonist being lit from two different angles, so he has two shadows. Do you know who that saxophonist was? I didn't until you pointed him out to me, and I'm so appreciative you did. It's John Lorry. I know, and I love it. <laughs> so I loved that in your notes you were like, oh my gosh, Tom Waits, Tom Waits, Tom Waits. And I was like, but, hey. And I called you and I was like, that's Tom Lorry. And you were like, no way. And it's such a, it's such a weird thing because literally blink and you'll miss it. I was scribbling something about like the morality between Des and Roberta's romance And while I was scribbling, I missed his cameo. Well, and you don't see his face because the shade is drawn. Truly, you just see his outline. So you wouldn't have even have known it was John Laurie. Right. Absolutely. It's so, so delightful. Everybody, I, I, if you didn't listen to our Down by Law episode, if nothing else, go follow John Laurie on Twitter because he's phenomenal. 
Oh, am I mispronouncing his last name? Is it Laurie or Laurie? I think it's Lurie, but I, I'm probably the last person on earth to give pronunciation advice. Speaking from the man who says biopic instead of biopic. Well, also, um, this is hardly the time to spring this on you, but is it Ghibli or Ghibli? Oh my God. Because I've heard both. How do I have a film podcast with you? Just give out your Oscar. (laughs) Which is to say, I don't know. Right. Um, My Oscar to Desperately Seeking Susan. I talked about one of the things that I loved most about this movie was the the slice of New York that it, it showed and that is still possible but you really gotta look for it nothing encapsulated that more to me than the soho like window shop it's it's integral to the story you know it's it's where susan gets those awesome studded heels and trades in her jacket and then oh my gosh those shoes those shoes oh sorry go on Please go on. Well, but so like, I am in love with that shop. I am in love with everything about that shop. That shop where the guy is running such a hustle that, you know, one minute he's he's trading a jacket for some shoes and she makes, Susan makes a big point of saying that, you know, this was Jimi Hendrix's, but I bet he'd be okay with me trading it for those shoes, which first of all, who the hell knows if that's true or, or, or if that's a lie. And without missing a beat, this guy turns to a woman in the shop who watched this transaction take place and go, <laughs> I'll, I'll sell you this. You know, this was Elvis Presley's jacket. Uh, <laughs> Which very different builds, Jimi Hendrix and Elvis Presley. Right. But he knew he needed to punch it up so he could ask for more money. Like... Maybe not that shop in specific, but you can go to New York and if you wander around the right part of the village, you can walk into that store and that same like now he's an elderly gay man, but he's still running a hustle and he's still selling spiked heels and biker jackets and being amazing. And I mean, I'm, I've talked so much about New York. I, I spent a summer before college in New York and that's it. That is my only time there. I very much enjoyed it. I very much clearly want to go back and like be in that space a little bit, but like I don't have this deep connection to New York and yet this movie just welled up what connection I did have and made me so like just want to go in there and haggle with the guy about CDs or something. So all of that to say, best slice of yesterday's New York. (laughs) So is this cult? I think this is, this is that like, that true cult. That good, good cult. That good, good, real cult in like, nobody talks about this movie and yet this we had both like just heard this title so many times this was a a known quantity in our minds but we didn't know a thing about it it's fun it's quotable like i'm gonna sit here and tell people that they need to watch this movie like this maybe maybe it's so underrated you know Mm. this isn't Mm -hmm. this isn't cult like toxic avenger this isn't cult like bad taste or 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 even ginger snaps as far as i know home video didn't financially save this movie you know it it had a budget of four and a half million dollars had an opening weekend poll of one and a half million it did go on to have a 28 million dollar gross I don't know if that is like in the years since or, or, or what, but this, this nobody made a second one of these. Nobody made a franchise. Maybe it's cause they couldn't get Madonna at that point. She'd already made it. I don't know. <laughs> this is, this was so good. This was such an underrated gem of a movie. And I, I think it manages to be cult on that alone. 
Um, so my reading rec for this film is perfectly encapsulating of the themes of this film. Okay. Because there is a biography called, or an autobiography titled Not About Madonna. And it's by Whit Hill, who was written, or which was written by um, Madonna's college roommate. And so it deals with a lot of the same themes of like, well, I'm not famous, but I peripherally dance around this person who is famous. I had a baby at the same time that my college roommate was having a baby. And by the way, my college roommate was Madonna. Uh, it's weird because I go to my college reunions and my college reunions have Madonna at them. And it kind of gives that perspective of like the Roberta Susan backlash of like, I have this person in my periphery that I'm obsessed with, but also not obsessed with because they have my own life. I'm here for that. That's, that's really fascinating. Um, cause there are so many people you can do that, but, but there are a lot less people you can do that where it's a bona fide superstar. Yeah. Right. Like my mom went to grade school with Terry Hatcher, but she's not writing an autobiography about that. Um, <laughs> I'd be, I'd be down for that. I think that's a great reading rack. Yeah. Do well, you know what else you're down for? <laughs> I know exactly what I'm down for. And it's some six degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Which, uh, what happened here, friend? You want to just go on three? One, two, three. Lori Metcalf, Metcalf was in, in JFK, JFK with, with Kevin, Kevin Bacon. Bacon. When, and we both got one. Yeah. And like, I, I was telling you before we, we hit record, like, JFK is just a big enough movie. Like, it's it's not even Kevin Bacon's eighth biggest movie but it's just a big enough movie and laurie metcalf <laughs> is just a big enough actor that i remember she was in jfk um mm-hmm. and and when when the, you got one you got to take the one so yeah, sure i'm sitting here not knowing if kevin bacon is in any of our movies i feel like he's gotta be but... he's gotta be he's kevin bacon that's true <laughs> i'm sure we'll find something let's see if he's in our next movie Thank you. That's that's the pivot I was looking for. <laughs> hey, who loves you, baby? All right. So um, we still have 309 movies um, and every episode of Cult Fiction, we randomly select from that list and we figure out what the next movie is going to be, which is what we're going to go ahead and do now. Do, 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 do. Ah. And we have number 59. Number 59, returning to the podcast, Mr. John Waters. Yes! Uh, Really? Yeah, number 59 is the Johnny Depp musical Crybaby. Oh my god, I've wanted to see this for ages! I'm very okay with this. Like <laughs> I've been wanting there. There are a couple of directors who were on here like a bunch. And of course, John Waters is one of them. And like, <laughs> so this is going to be a true Waters and I'm very excited for it. So I should prepare myself for hamsters up assholes. I mean, maybe in fairness, I haven't seen Crybaby, but. <laughs> oh boy. All right. Cause this is young Johnny Depp. This is like. Hey, that kid from Nightmare on Elm Street, Johnny Depp. Oh my God. I am so excited. This was filmed in 1990. Um, Let's see. We can see it on YouTube, iTunes, Google Play Movies, um, Vudu, sorry, Amazon mm-hmm. Prime, Hulu, Sling TV, and Stars. If you have a subscription and you're one of the five people who subscribes to Stars, there you go. <laughs> I'm <people>. excited. <laughs> it's a 1990 American teen musical romantic comedy film written and directed by John Waters. It was the only film of Waters over which studios were in a bidding war. <laughs> 
Yeah, this is this is post hairspray waters, which meant he had entered like his less insane phase. Definitely still mm-hmm. insane. We we you know we watched um, um, Cecil be demented, and that was insane. But I'm I'm just I'm very psyched. Oh my gosh. I'm looking at images from the movie now, and my body is ready. This looks to me, just from the poster and just from reading that it, it's set in the 50s, this looks to me like John Waters saw Grease and walked out of the theater muttering, eh, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time as we dive back into Baltimore, deal with Patricia Hurst, <laughs> as we watch John Waters' Crybaby. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. Hey!